you have a copy of the Word of God, I invite you to turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. I know we've commenced a study in the book of Hebrews, but we have been in the Song of Solomon for our communion services, and we want to finish this with the Lord's help. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Last time we looked at verse 5. We'll read from there again and read through verse 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire which hath the most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. Amen. May the Lord bless His Word to us as we give consideration to it before we sit at the Lord's table. Let's pray, beloved. Let's Look to the Lord for His help again. Our God, we are always very needy because we're sinners. And we never stop being sinners in this life. Therefore, it doesn't matter what our condition in terms of economically or physically, how we may be feeling or where, where we may be at today, we are in need. We need Jesus. We need the blood of Christ. We need the presence of God. We need the pardon that He promises. We need to be drawn, drawn closer to Thee, So, Lord, we pray that Thou wilt take Thy Word and make it a means, make it an instrument, make it that which Thou wilt use to help us to really enjoy Thy presence as we sit at the table. Come, Lord, make Thy Word exceedingly precious to us. Make Thy presence known. Fill me with Thy Spirit. Descend upon us in power, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're coming very near to the end of our study in this book, beloved. We have spent a considerable period of time, as far as time is uh, measured, ever since I've gotten here, basically the vast majority of our communions, we have given consideration to the Song of Solomon. And every time I, I stand here, I become very aware that there are some in our midst that haven't been here for the vast bulk of the study, and therefore 
when I begin to interpret or I begin to apply various portions, they may be shocked. They may be shocked because they read this book like it's some kind of practical manual for uh, those that are married, those that are in love. And that's not what it is, at least not in the way that we primarily understand it. Does it have application to marriages? Absolutely. Of that there is no doubt. We have scriptural warrant for that. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 draws from the relationship between Christ and His people and makes application to husbands and wives. So the application is there. There's no getting around it. You can read the Song of Solomon and say, well, there's certainly something for me to take to heart here in how husbands are to love their wives, how wives are to love their husbands, and so on. But the primary purpose of the book is redemptive. And so we make no apology, and I repeat it every time, no apology in saying first here the relationship between Christ and His church. Is that not the whole end of the Scripture? Is that not what it is from Genesis through Revelation? Is it not in its focus a message of redemption? Is it not telling us how sinners can be reconciled? What it is that God is doing on behalf of lost and fallen men? Is it not continually reminding us of the promises of God, of substitution, of redemption, of salvation, of all the means, all the ways, all the truths that point to this one particular need of men, and that is, how can a sinner be reconciled to a holy God? This book takes us beyond the surface. It doesn't just deal with the kind of surface-level doctrines, but it it is a constant reminder that because of what Christ has done, how the church responds is one that is emotive. It is to be felt. It is to be lived out. It is to be real. The Song of Solomon militates against nominal Christianity. It has no place for people to say, I'm a Christian, but there's no evidence of it in the life. There's nothing in the speech, nothing in the manner of the conduct, nothing in the motives and ambitions and desires of the life. It militates against that. It tells us, basically, that there ought to be this passionate devotion for Christ that is reciprocating what the sinner enjoys from Him. Those who are redeemed, those who are His. Our verses for today are verses 6 and 7. The word love is mentioned three times. Therefore, that is the emphasis of the text. And it is, comes in the form of a desire. The bride, in verse 6, she requests, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. And goes on then to give some details about love. It is a prayer, therefore. And God's people have prayers, don't they? And one of the prayers we come back to is, help me, Lord, help me to understand your love for me and help me in turn to love you. 
And there are certain aspects of that love that are to be enjoyed, to be meditated upon, reflected upon, and we're going to think about them today. Beloved, we understand that the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ changes how we live. We can't meditate upon, we can't sing about, we can't preach about the love of Christ and do it in some way where it's like we just heard some poem rehearsed but it doesn't impact us or some speech that may be eloquent but doesn't make any difference to how we live. The love of Christ constrains. It draws us into a certain response. It causes us to live in a certain way. The bride knows that she has been raised up. You can see that verse 5. I raise thee up. She knows. She knows she has been delivered. She has no right to the privileges that she enjoys by His hand. And so it is for us. We are, ought to be overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by His love. So this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, we consider this message a love like, unlike any other, a love unlike any other. And to see, first of all, that this love is formed by an indissoluble union. This love is formed by an indissoluble union. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine heart arm. And there are two things I want us to reflect upon here. First, that this is a union that is priestly for the bridegroom. It is a union that is priestly for the bridegroom. The word seal that is used twice in verse 6 has this, it indicates that ancient practice of having some kind of mark whereby you could see the mark and know to whom it belongs. Kings and rulers and people that own things, they would, they would set marks upon their property or upon some other uh, thing that came from them. It, was, it undergirded the sense of the, the authority upon which the land or the decree or whatever it might be is under. You have it as an example in Daniel chapter 6, at the, uh, Daniel being cast into the lion's den in Daniel 6.17 we note there that a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet. He puts his mark upon it. He has given his authority and approval for this very thing. And the bride here desires to be like the very seal by which the bridegroom is identified. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. I want to be marked upon you. I want to be as a mark by which you are identified. This is the purpose, or at least in part, the, the, one of the privileges of the church. The church gets to be a kind of a, a seal to the reality of Jesus Christ and His saving love. Every single member of the church is in the business of proclaiming and declaring and exalting and spreading the fame of Jesus Christ. We're in the business of making Him known, and we therefore function like a seal of the reality of our King. But many, I think, miss the desire that is really at the heart of this request. 
when she says, set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, we ask the question, what exactly is she thinking about? Why upon his heart? Why upon his arm? Now, we could get, it wouldn't take much imagination to start reflecting upon the significance of the heart, the significance of the arm, and to make some application there. But one of the errors that we make when we interpret Scripture is not turning to other passages that give insight into what the meaning is all about. The book of Revelation is a classic example of this. People start interpreting the book of Revelation with no reference to the prophets. And they end up in all sorts of bother and misinterpretation as to what the significance of the revelation is because that revelation given to John, that revelation of Jesus Christ, is not in a vacuum. Much of the imagery is drawing upon the imagery already given in the Old Testament Scriptures. We make a mistake. It's the same of other aspects of God's Word. They're constantly drawing from the Pentateuch or, or whatever. If we, if we don't see that there are certain truths that already govern the meaning, then we miss some of the richness that is there and we're left to just conjecture ourselves. But when we realize there's a relationship going on that, that precedes this, that there's other texts that illuminate the passage, I think there's much more blessing for us to enjoy. And I think that is the case here as well. Turn for a moment to Exodus 28. Exodus chapter 28. I mentioned that this union is priestly for the bridegroom because I believe that her desire to be set as a seal upon his heart and upon his arm is not just with reference to the ancient practice of having a kind of signet or a seal placed in certain locations, but is actually drawing upon this portion where we have the, the giving of the priestly garments. So you see from verse 1 of chapter 28, where the Aaron is to be taken, and verse 2 says, Thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. And there are various aspects of this garb, various uh, parts of the garment that is to be made and placed upon him. Now, uh, for the sake of time, just go to verse 9. And there we read of something that is placed upon him. Thou shalt take two onyx stones and grave on them the names of the children of Israel. Six of their names on one stone the other six names of the rest on the other stone, according to their birth, with the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, shalt thou engrave the two stones with the names of the children of Israel. Thou shalt make them to be set in ouches or sockets of gold, and thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod for stones of memorial unto the children of Israel." Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. Now here you see there are two stones. They're set in to the, the ephod that's placed upon the priest, placed upon Aaron. And there's one stone on one shoulder, another stone on the other, and there's six names on each stone, reflecting the people of God. Now move down to verse 21. 
Here we have more engraving, more references to a signet or seal. Verse 21, the stones shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet. Every one with his name shall they be according to the twelve tribes. And you have these stones that are taken, a breastplate then that is made, and these stones are placed upon the breastplate. And you go down to verse 29, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. When he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. In other words, the priest is to wear garments that reflect constantly for him, for his benefit, as well as to everyone else, that the names of the people of God are upon the shoulder, which is a part of the arm, and upon his heart. And when you reflect upon that, is, is that not perhaps what she's thinking about, what she's reflecting upon when she thinks about that particular imagery that was to be enjoyed by the children of Israel, that every time they saw the high priest, they were reminded that we are a people near to the heart of God and born upon the shoulders even of our Lord. And Christ comes to be the high priest of His people. He comes to stand in that position. All that garment, all that garb was reflective of what Christ does for His people. And so the high priest takes on all these garments, and in them is this reminder, these people belong to me. Their mark is upon me. I bear them everywhere I go. And I bear them in two particular locations, on the shoulders on the heart. Beloved, I think, I, I think that's the beautiful imagery that is being put before us. That's why her prayer is such, set me as a seal upon thine heart and as a seal upon thine arm. Let my name be there. You're as the high priest to me. You're the one that represents me. You're the one that stands on my behalf. And you, you're the only one that can bring me near to God. Beloved, that, that's, that's how we look at Christ. That, that's how we think of Him. That's how our minds are drawn to Him this morning as we, we ponder over Him as our priestly bridegroom. He's not just the bridegroom, but He is a priestly bridegroom to His people. And He is married to His people, and He brings them near to God. It's a wonderful depiction of what we have in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. So she is thinking upon him as a high priest. The high priest bearing the names upon two particular parts of the body. They are upon the shoulder to uphold them. So there they are being upheld. They're a weak people. They can't bring themselves to God. They can't satisfy the demands of the law. They, they have no strength in and of themselves. They're weak. They need to be borne upon the shoulder. They need to be upon the strong arms of one who can carry them and keep them going on. They're her strength then. She, again, you go back, who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved. We thought about that, didn't we? She is weak. She's not strong. She is leaning upon her beloved. Here now she is reflecting upon this, upon the arm, upon the shoulder. Bear me there. Isn't it good to know that? 
You come in feeling your weakness. Now, some of you are here this morning and you're, you're feeling your weakness very keenly. And one of the things that you struggle to come to terms with is that God appoints your weakness so that you learn the glory of His strength. It's really hard to adjust to that, you know. When you live so many years of your life with strength, a sense of autonomy, independence, ability, you're not dependent on anyone. You get by. You're able to do whatever you want. And when some of those things start being taken from you for whatever reason, it's very difficult to adjust and we start complaining. We start complaining, why, Lord? Why are you taking away my strength? Why are you taking away my ability? Why are you taking away this, that, and the other? And you feel you're being stripped of something that you've had. But the fact is that he is pouring in grace in that moment. You, you were in your spiritual immaturity. You were able to get by. And he allowed you to have that sense of strength in yourself. But he begins to take it away to substitute it with grace and his strength. You learn more and more in the Christian life. You, you can't do it by yourself. You're utterly dependent upon him. And so to the children this morning, to the young people, to those new in the faith, you don't maybe fully understand the, the joy of being upon the shoulder of Christ. But some of you more mature, some of you more aged, it gives you great comfort to reflect on this. With the waning of your strength, with the challenges of your life, you come here this morning and you need to be reminded, I am on the shoulder of Christ. He is bearing me along. Again, I've made reference to it so many times, but familiar passages bear off repeating so that we can get all sorts of application from them. But in Luke 15, when the, good, when the shepherd goes out after the lost sheep and he finds it and he places it on his shoulder... Does he do that just to get it out of its trouble? Does he kind of come halfway and then set it down and say you can walk the rest of the way? He brings it the whole way on his shoulder. This is what Christ does for his people. He upholds them. We are on his shoulder to be upheld. And we are upon his heart to be understood. When we think of God, when we consider the glory of His person, the unapproachableness of His essence, light unapproachable, what comfort is there? We may reflect some comfort if we imagine that that strength that he has is being exercised in our favor, perhaps. But the real joy of the Christian is when we see our God in the face of Jesus Christ, made bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. 
It's when we see one that that understands. He has a heart. As we read in Hebrews chapter 4, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We have a high priest who is touched, can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So we are near to his heart because we are understood. All your temptations, all your trials, you think Jesus doesn't understand? We make the mistake sometimes by imagining that the only people that really understand certain sins are those who have fallen into them. So in in certain aspects of psychology, of of counseling, sometimes there can be resistance if the person needing the help feels like you've never been where I am. You don't know what it's like to be addicted to this. You don't know what it's like to have walked through this. Therefore, you can't help me. But it's wrong. It's wrong. Christ didn't have to fall into adultery to understand. He didn't have to fall into addiction to understand. He didn't have to fall in any way to understand. The temptation itself caused him to understand. And let me say further, because of the impeccability of his nature, because of his strength, because of the impossibility of succumbing to temptation, the temptations had to be more fierce than any of us have ever experienced. The person that succumbs to some kind of sin or addiction has not felt the full weight of that challenge. They succumb far earlier. The devil only has to go a little ways. There's something in our nature that actually is drawn to that sin, drawn to that addiction, drawn to whatever it might be. But that was not in Christ. And so the level of temptation, the level of what he faced is on a magnitude far beyond what we have ever experienced. So when you have to acknowledge your weakness and you wonder if anyone understands, Jesus understands. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And I suggest to you, tempted to a far greater degree. So she is thinking upon her bridegroom as this priestly bridegroom. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. Isn't it good to know that Christ sets up this table and your name is upon him? Your name is on his shoulder. Your name is upon his heart. Set as a seal. That's why we say it's an indissoluble union. John Gill says, 
The church's desire is that she might be affectionately loved by Christ, be deeply fixed in his heart, be ever in his view, owned and acknowledged by him, and protected by the arm of his power. And so it is. But also it is a union that is personal to the bride. It is a union that is personal to the bride. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. Set me. There's a sense in which we feel it very peculiarly to ourselves, isn't it? Isn't it true? Now sometimes, sometimes Christians get in the habit of coming into the house of God and hearing the word of God or a particular something, some aspect of the service, and they're, all, they're always thinking, oh, that would be perfect for them, you know. And they're applying the text and the truths and the hymns and everything. They're saying, oh, that person needed to hear that today. That's a terrible habit to get into. Because we're to come into the house of God with a sense of what I need. And she is being selfish about her own need here. Set me as a seal. Set me. Make sure my name's there. There's a place for this, you know. There's a place of stepping out of the corporate into the particular and the personal. Paul, the vast majority of his epistles, he's always talking about us. He's always including the entire church. He's always speaking in terms of everyone that, to whom he is writing. But there are times, there are times where he reflects upon the personal need of his heart, the personal experience of his testimony. Galatians 2.20 being uppermost in this. Oh, you know it. You know it so well. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, be true for him to say us. We are crucified with Christ. He, he, could, he could bring everyone in and he could say, yes, this is true of all of us in Christ. But there are times for, for, for just pondering, considering, reflecting upon the need of our own hearts. And it's right to come to the Lord's table thinking that way. With the prayer. Oh, maybe some of you come not sure whether you're saved. You're here this morning and you don't even know whether you're really in Christ. And your prayer should be set me as a seal upon thine heart. Make me to know that you're yours, Lord. Make me to be aware that you have received me and taken me. So that you can say with Paul, that Christ is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, child of God, don't, don't, don't feel like it's wrong to think that way. Yes, we must, we must, we can be too individualistic. We can not reflect upon the corporate, upon the, the covenant community of God's people. That, that can be a problem itself. But we also need to spend time reflecting upon what Christ means to me. What He has done for me. There's something about that. There's something about recognizing that on the cross, it's not just generally the church, though it is. But there's a sense in which I can gaze upon the cross 
and see the Lamb suffering for me. Every drop of blood pouring forth from his veins was for me. Me. There he is. In untold agony, bearing the wrath of God for me. We ought to, we ought to feel it. Don't talk in terms just always of some detached experience. Some of you have gotten there. You've gotten there. And you know you've gotten there whenever you don't feel the truths anymore. Doctrines are just things to be considered, maybe even memorized, certainly often debated. But they used to be, they used to be, they used to be things to weep over. This love is formed by an indissoluble union. This is what she's reflecting on. Set me as a seal. This, this can't be taken away. This cannot be changed. It is a standing that she personally enjoys. Secondly, this love is proved by an incomprehensible power. She continues then, For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Let's just briefly look at each of these. We have, first of all, as she reflects on this, an affection. It's affection. The affection of this love is as strong as death. Love is strong as death. Looking at it in the experience of life, the strength of death is undeniable. No man can run from it. No man can hide from it. No man by himself can defeat it. And she says, love is strong as death. Again, looking at it, there's nothing stronger in terms of the experience of this life. Only divine omnipotence through the person of Jesus Christ can make an end of death. It is a great foe. Love is strong as death. This is a powerful reflection upon what love is, real love. And it is getting gained to the affection of it. 
It will stand anything. Bear anything. Believe. Hope. It's 1 Corinthians 13. There's nothing like love. When you read 1 Corinthians 13 and faith, hope, charity, the greatest of these is charity. Why? Because it's the only one that continues beyond the pale of this life. Faith gives way to sight. Hope is fulfilled. And charity continues. In one sense, through our new covenant understanding, we might say love is stronger than death. By Christ. And so this is the kind of love she's reflecting upon. This, this, this love. The, the love, the love, dear child of God, that helps you to come into the house of God and sit at this table knowing that for all the failure that you're guilty of, Christ still loves you. And he invites you to sit and dine with him. This is the kind of love that gives comfort. Nothing else can give comfort like this. We measure, we measure ourselves by our, by our performance. If, if, our, if his love is dictated by our performance, what comfort is there there? I think if we understood his love was dictated by our performance and we really understood that, I'd stand at this table and we would all walk out without participating. But we can sit, not because we believe our performance is up to snuff, but because we believe his love is as strong as death. This is the comfort of us, for us. And as I say, even in terms of, when I said earlier, there is application. There's application to husbands and wives. Love is strong as death. Not based on performance. So, its affection is as strong as death. Its exclusivity is as cruel as the grave. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. As it stands translated, isn't the easiest to understand. Makes you wonder whether or not it's speaking of jealousy in the positive or in the negative. Because there is a, there's a positive aspect to jealousy and there's a negative. And I believe the positive is in what is in mind. And if we translate it slightly differently, in fact, if you have a margin... You may have cruel uh, highlighted in a way that it may be read as hard. And so you can see the, the, the connection with the sense of strength. Something hard or strong. The sense of this jealousy is as hard or strong as the grave. It's, it's kind of building upon what has already been considered. 
And so seen in that light, jealousy is as hard as the grave. It's looking at it in the positive. It's speaking here of the exclusivity that it can't be penetrated. That, that, that what is felt towards the object of our affection is something that, that can't, there, there is no, no competitors, no con- contestants can come in and supplant it. We read it in, the, in the, our, our reading of the law this morning that our God is, is a jealous God. That's positive. He is jealous for His honor, jealous for His glory. He has an exclusivity. He's not in the business of plurality and saying all gods should be given equal respect. He has a jealousy that, that, that protects His own name and His own honor. And this then is what's being applied here, that the exclusivity of the love is one where there, there, there can't, you, you won't allow anything. It's, it's, and it's as certain as the grave. It's, it comes about as certainly as the grave comes for us all. And so it is of Christ's love for us, and it should be our love for Him. Exclusive. To the degree that it is offered, it is exclusive. We don't, we don't have time for other gods. We don't have time for other idols. We don't have time for other things that claim the affection of our hearts in a way that takes away from Jesus Christ. You have to, and let me say to you, you have to take a militant view towards anything that threatens your love for Christ. If you live in such a way where you, you, you are not militant against those things that take away your love for Christ, you're going to fall. Its intensity is as coals of fire. The coals thereof are coals of fire which hath a most vehement flame. Again, it's, it's the sense of the heat. Coals of fire. One that has a most vehement flame. There's the red heart. Which speaks of his intensity. This love isn't half-hearted. Our Lord Jesus I'm standing here wondering whether the better word to use is desire or demands. Certainly he desires. I think we could also say demands it. Fervent, fervent love. Intense love. Did the Laodiceans not have to learn that? I wish that you were hot or cold. But you're lukewarm. You're lukewarm. You're drifting along. Lukewarm. You're content to be lukewarm. You just exist in this lukewarm. Warm existence. And, and Christ addresses it. And he gives warnings. If you don't recognize my demand, yes, my desire, but I think with the, with the undergirding threat of the, of the letter to the Laodiceans, there's a sense of demand. If you don't 
understand my desire for your love to be intense, I will spew you out of my mouth. The reason Christ hates lukewarm affections is because that's not what he offers. Everything in his being, everything in the the being of our Redeemer is red hot, isn't it? What moves him to accept the mission to be the missionary? To come from the splendor of glory to take upon him our humanity forever and to bear the curse upon himself, the judgment, the despising of men, the hatred of all that came at him. And in his lofty position, he, he embraces it. Love, red hot love moves that, moves him to come. And so when we, when we sit here in our, in our, and we just kind of go through the motions with religious outward form, but there's no red-hot passion and love and zeal, it has to be an abomination. It undermines everything we profess we believe. We, we, we believe he condescended. We believe he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We believe he bore our sins in full, in totality. We believe he faced the wrath of God and swallowed up, swallowed up all the wrath of God, extinguished it for his people. So the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. And its persistence, we say fourthly, is as unquenchable, is unquenchable and undrownable, if that's a word. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. It persists. The floods come and threaten to sweep it away. The floods come and threaten to swallow it up and remove its existence. But it can't. can't be done. keeps on existing. Many waters. Oh, you could put in your sins there instead of water, couldn't you? Many sins cannot quench love. It keeps on loving. He keeps loving me. He keeps loving you. Every week we leave this place, and what do we do? Are we more perfect than the week before? (laughs) Oh. And we keep coming back. We keep remembering we need to be forgiven. He that says he has no sin deceives himself and the truth is not in him. So if you think you come here some Lord's Day and you think, 
I've got it. <laughs> I've got it. I dedicated my life to Christ last week, and this entire week, I have been 100% committed, holy through and through. You're not saved. You're not saved. The Spirit teaches us. Praise His name. He teaches us our shortcomings. Constantly pointing out, nagging, making us aware. Yeah, you broke it there, and you broke it there, and you broke it there. You broke it. And then, what's that, what does that prompt us to do? The Spirit's not doing that in some way to be condescending to us. But to move us to Christ. It's like every day that's where I need to be. Sitting at the cross. Many waters cannot quench love. He keeps on loving. And so this is to be our love for him. How could it not be? How could it not be? How could we not reciprocate the same kind of love? How could our love not be affectionate? How could it not be exclusive and intense and persistent? How could it not be? I say, I say, just, just, just kind of short application. If some of us as spouses were to go home and just look at this and think about them in light of the vows we made before God and men, we've, we've come up short. Thirdly, this love is considered an incalculable love. Or of, of incalculable value, I should say. This love is considered of incalculable value. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned or treated with contempt. You don't buy it. You can't buy love. You try to. The text stands. It's, it's going to be condemned. And so we, we mentioned Simon. That's what Simon tried to do. Buy the favor of God. I want that power. Here, how much? Some people treat religion like that. Roman Catholic Church cultivates it, encourages it. Poor Roman Catholics lying in hospital beds and the priests coming around and feeling like they need to get out their purses to obtain some kind of favor with God. That's not, that's not it. If you give all the subs, everything you have, it, it's, it's not it. It's, it's the being. Love is the being. It is, it is, the, the, it is relational. How wonderful is our Redeemer. He loves us in this way. He invites us, uh, you know, scratch that. He doesn't invite us. When we pray, set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, he's preempted it. He's preempted it. We're already upon him. I mean, that's what the depiction of the high priest and his garments were all about. It's God saying, this is how, this is how the Messiah will deal with you. Your name will be upon his heart. The wonderful thing is, you know, you're, you're not limited by the, the space on those onyx stones or the other stones that were upon the breastplate. You're not limited by the space to put the name of one tribe or six upon one onyx stone. You're not limited by that. 
Christ bears the individual names of all his people. And he doesn't bear them just. Oh, listen, listen. He doesn't just bear them on his heart. And he doesn't just bear them on his shoulder. Isaiah, looking through the eons of time, led by the Spirit of God in Isaiah 49, verse 16, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Think of it. This is what we do. It's the body, the body of Christ. Our names are are graven, as it were, on the palms of his hands. Taking those, those nails there upon the cross, they're driven into him because of love. His love for us. And his love that kept him there on that tree, bearing the agony, suffering the wrath of God. When that bitter cup that love drank up, he then bowed his head, stepped into death, and then rose again the third day. What love is this? May the Lord bless His Word to our hearts today. Let's bow together in prayer. As we're before the Lord, Christian, this is Just a minute to reflect and just be thankful. You're going to sit at the table. You're invited to sit at the table by Christ if you're His. Can you say it's well with your soul? Can you? Do you know that Christ is yours and you're His? Lord, we pray that you will bless your word. Make it that means of grace. It is that means of grace, but by the Spirit, use it unto edification and salvation. Oh, that we would would be able to comprehend the height and length and depth and breadth and know the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to understand. Help us to take it in. What it meant for Thee the lowly one, to take away our sin. Be with us round the table now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.